Chapter 25 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Tide Turns. Parliament had been summoned for February the 5th, 1874, with the important words for the dispatch of business. It is perhaps hardly necessary to tell most of my readers that during the recess Parliament is summoned nominally from time to time, not with any practical purpose of bringing it back to work, but in order that it may be constitutionally liable to be recalled to work if any sudden emergency should arise. But when the words are added for the dispatch of business, that always means that Parliament is summoned for actual work on that particular day. Parliament, then, was summoned for February the 5th, 1874, for the dispatch of business. On the night of January the 23rd, 1874, an amazing report began to spread abroad among certain limited circles of political men in London. I remember that night well. Perhaps I may be allowed to describe it in words of my own, which were published a few years after the occasion. Men were mysteriously beckoned away from dinner tables and drawing rooms and club rooms. Agitated messengers hurried to ministerial doors seeking for information. There was commotion in the newspaper offices. The telegraph was set in constant action. Next morning, all the world read the news in the papers. Mr. Gladstone had suddenly made up his mind to dissolve Parliament and seek for a restoration of the authority of the Liberal government by an appeal to the people. Mr. Gladstone explained the reason for his decision in an address to his constituents. He declared that he could no longer put up with the difficulty of seeming to have the authority he had received in 1868, now sunk below the point necessary for the due defense and prosecution of the public interests and that, therefore, he proposed to appeal to the constituencies by a dissolution of Parliament in the hope of thus obtaining a popular approval of his general policy. Should he be successful in that endeavor, he undertook that if restored to power, he would introduce a series of financial reforms which would include the complete abolition of the income tax. Now, I think there can be no mistake as to the general impression produced by the publication of Mr. Gladstone's address and by the dissolution of Parliament. The grumbling was especially widespread among his own followers and his own party. The time of the Parliament had nearly run out, and there were many liberals who had little hope of being returned again to the House of Commons. Such men were most unwilling to lose even a year of parliamentary existence. They could not understand Mr. Gladstone's motive, and they looked upon themselves as positively ill-treated. Why didn't he think about us, they muttered among themselves. We have voted with him very faithfully, and he might have had a little more consideration for us. Such men as these could not understand the motive of Mr. Gladstone. To him, it seemed ignoble that a prime minister should remain in office one hour after he had found reason to believe 
that he no longer possessed the confidence of the majority of the people. To him, a seat in Parliament was a matter of utter insignificance, unless it enabled a man to do some good for his constituents and for the country. He might almost have spoken the eloquent words of Burke in the immortal speech at Bristol, and indeed there were many striking points of resemblance between the character of Burke and the character of Gladstone. It is certainly, said Burke, not pleasing to be put out of the public service, but I wish to be a member of Parliament to have my share of doing good and resisting evil. It would therefore be absurd to renounce my objects in order to retain my seat. I deceive myself indeed most grossly if I had not much rather passed the remainder of my life hidden in the recesses of the deepest obscurity, feeding my mind even with the visions and imaginations of such things, than to be placed on the most splendid throne of the universe, tantalized with a denial of the practice of all which can make the greatest situation any other than the greatest curse. Mr. Gladstone flung himself into the contest with all his characteristic earnestness and energy. He had not usually been what we call an open-air orator. But on this occasion he went down to Greenwich and addressed enormous popular meetings held on Blackheath. It was there that I, for the first time, heard Mr. Gladstone as an open-air orator addressing a monster meeting. There are in this country, at all events, three distinct kinds of political eloquence. There is the eloquence of the House of Commons. There is the eloquence of the platform indoors at one of the great gatherings at St. James's Hall, for instance. And then there is the eloquence addressed to the monster meeting in the open air. These, as I have said, are quite distinct forms of oratory, and the man is indeed seldom to be met with who can make a success with all three. Many a speaker who can hold the House of Commons in breathless interest during a long oration is found ineffective in St. James's Hall and would be hopeless at an open-air meeting. On the other hand, many a powerful platform speaker who can carry his audience with him is found wholly unsuited to the peculiar style and atmosphere of the House of Commons. I confess that I had some doubt whether Mr. Gladstone, with all his powers of voice, would be able to suit himself exactly to the task of addressing a great open-air meeting. His warmest admirers must admit that he has a somewhat dangerous gift of over-refining, and over-refining would never do for a monster meeting. The speaker must strike strong, direct, resounding, echoing blows. But Mr. Gladstone had not got three sentences of his speech out before I felt certain that he would prove himself just as much at home with the Blackheath meeting as with the St. James Hall or the House of Commons. His voice swelled and rang out to the uttermost verge of the vast crowd, and no listener had any occasion to trouble himself for one moment by a fear lest he should miss something of what the great orator was saying. I never admired Mr. Gladstone more than I did during those days when he fought so splendidly 
against impending fate. The fate was impending, however, all the same. When the elections were over, it was found that the Conservative Party had a majority of about 50, and that even the calculation of that majority was made on an assumption far too favorable to the Liberals, for it assumed that every Irish home ruler must be counted as a Liberal. In fact, the great reforming ministry was down in the dust. The Liberal statesmen had tried too much and done too much, had spent their force in too many splendid efforts and enterprises, and the time came at last when the spirit of conservative reaction prevailed over them. Mr. Gladstone followed the example set by Mr. Disraeli in 1868 and at once resigned office. This was by far the best course to take. It had been the custom on former occasions that a ministry defeated at a general election should return to office and wait until the reopening of Parliament and until the majority of the House of Commons had, after a long debate, declared its want of confidence in them. All this would have been, under such conditions, but a mere waste of time. Mr. Disraeli was right in setting the example. Mr. Gladstone was right in following it. The Queen invited Mr. Disraeli to form a conservative administration, and he was not long in settling down into office. Then came another surprise and shock for the Liberals in all parts of the country. Mr. Gladstone suddenly announced, in a letter to Lord Granville, dated March 12, 1874, that, for a variety of reasons personal to myself, I could not contemplate any unlimited extension of active political service, and I am anxious that it should be clearly understood by those friends with whom I have acted in the direction of affairs that at my age I must reserve my entire freedom to divest myself of all the responsibilities of leadership at no distant time. The need of rest will prevent me from giving more than an occasional attendance in the House of Commons during the present session. I should be desirous shortly before the commencement of the session of 1875 to consider whether there would be advantage in my placing my services for a time at the disposal of the Liberal Party, or whether I should then claim exemption from the duties I have hitherto discharged. If, however, there should be reasonable grounds for believing that instead of the course which I have sketched, it would be preferable in view of the party generally for me to assume at once the place of an independent member, I should willingly adopt the latter alternative. This letter brought back to the minds of some of us a passage in that speech of Burke's from which I have already quoted. Gentlemen, said Burke, I have had my day. I can never sufficiently express my gratitude to you for having set me in a place wherein I could lend the slightest help to great and laudable designs. If I have had my share in any measure given quiet to private property and private conscience, if by my vote I have aided in securing to families the best possession, peace, if I have joined in reconciling kings to their subjects and subjects to their prince, if I have assisted to loosen the foreign holdings of the citizen and taught him to look for his protection to the laws of his country, 
and for his comfort to the goodwill of his countrymen, if I have thus taken my part with the best of men in the best of their actions, I can shut the book. I might wish to read a page or two more, but this is enough for my measure. I have not lived in vain. Can it then be true that Mr. Gladstone, in the words of Burke, has had his day? He was much older even at that time than Burke was when he thus expressed his readiness to close the book. But it had never occurred to any of us to regard Mr. Gladstone as an old man, or even as within measurable distance of old age. To us, he was the very embodiment of strength and spirit and indomitable energy. The news sent a thrill of surprise all over the country and a shock of utter amazement and disturbance through the whole Liberal Party. There can be no doubt that for some time many of Mr. Gladstone's most devoted followers were complaining bitterly of the course he had taken. Mr. Gladstone pleaded his advancing years, but it was asked, were not the years of Mr. Disraeli still more advanced? And had Mr. Disraeli said one word about seeking retirement? Was he not, on the contrary, entering with alacrity on a great new chapter of his political career? Men gloomed darkly and whispered sadly about the manner in which the party was to be left to cureless ruin. Let it be understood that many of the bitterest of these utterances came out of the very devotion to Mr. Gladstone and confidence in his leadership, which was felt by the vast majority of his followers. Why does he leave us? How can we exist without him? That was the manner in which the questions shaped themselves. It did indeed seem at one time as if the whole liberal organization had received a blow from which in our time it never could recover. The very commotion which his threatened retirement created among the best of his own followers was but another tribute to his political genius, another form of proclaiming to the world that in the belief of the Liberal Party he was the one man indispensable to the Liberal cause. End of chapter 25